Morning, Hope Church and visitors. Good to see everybody here. You can open up the Bible to Ephesians chapter 2. We're uh, honored and privileged to be seeing these people baptized today. Amen? Amen. It's going to be a great blessing to to witness the Lord's grace in the life of of these people. We're going to be in Ephesians 2 while usually we are studying ourselves through the book of Mark and we have been doing so for about a year and a half. We're taking a break today to consider a, uh, a passage that, that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, and it's going to be in his second chapter. So Ephesians chapter 2, and basically the, the first whole paragraph or chapter there. Everyone, every one of us, whether we realize it or not, every person that we bump up against and deal with has a view of the world that we live in and our relation to it. Every person functionally lives in light of how they view the world around them and their place in it. So that if you are close to the center, then you're going to have a pretty self-centered lifestyle and self-serving attitude. If, if you think somebody else, they're going to be, you know, maybe a functional idol, you're going to be serving them or that career or whatever it is, or, or with all of your energy, heart, soul, mind and strength, your view of the world and your place within it is, is one of the most important things about you. It defines everything else. And I wonder if, if Christians are aware that when they became Christ, when you received a new Lord, a new heart, a new life, a new spirit, a new father, uh, your view of the whole world and how you relate to it radically changed. Uh, uh, I wonder if maybe you're somebody, Christian or not, who thinks, how do I relate to this world? Uh, where am I in it? What are the most important things about me? What, what things that happen to me, good or bad, traumatic or, or life-shaping in a good way, what things should I focus on as being the most important things about me? What things that I have done should I focus on as the most important things about me? This, is, this really just goes to make up your biography about you, how you live, what you did, how you'll die. That's, that's you. Well, today what Paul got, gives to us and shows to us is the Christian's spiritual biography. The testimony that God himself writes down about us. So later on, we'll, we'll hear some stories of, of people being baptized and the stories of God in their life and, and what that looked like on the ground. But here, Paul's giving us the, the overarching, the, the, the superior, the, the, the imposed spiritual reality. Your testimony, Christian, as how God sees you. The most important things about you who you are, the most important things that have happened to you, and who God is. This text, Ephesians chapter 2, look down to verse 4. Here we will find the biography of every true Christian. The truths define who we are, but not by what we have done. If, if you were reading a biography, you would no doubt list in, 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 in long prose and impressive chapters the great feats of the person written about, especially in autobiography, telling, them, telling everybody who would buy the book about themselves. Well, when we look at our biography, the greatest thing about you is not something you've done. We're not going to look at the, how great we are or what we've accomplished. We're going to look at the great grace of God and what he has done through the Lord Jesus Christ to us. And friends, by, God, by God's grace, if you're not a Christian yet, we pray that this is going to become your testimony. That this will one day be your biography, that you were walking in sin, God made you alive and sat you in the spiritual realms with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're praying for our unsaved loved ones. Amen? Amen. That's, what we, that's what we desire by God's grace. So let's read from verse 4, and we will read through to verse 6. <clears throat> Hear now the word of the one true living God. 
But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We expect God to bless us by his spirit as we read and preach his own inerrant, authoritative, precious word. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, as we look at this biography of every true Christian, we actually need to start a little bit further back than what I read. You might have thought it was a rare day. We're really just going to preach three verses here at Hope, but that was a, that was a false promise. We will, in fact, be going back to the beginning of the chapter. And, and here in the first sort of third, the first section of this text, we find how, how truly worse off we are, more evil we are than we think by nature. We see here in verse 1 to 3 how much worse we are by nature than we are prone to think. Unlike any, any autobiography, unlike any biography of somebody you've written, a sporting legend or, or a political uh, figure or something like that, you've never read something that outlines chapter by chapter all of their sins, their iniquity, their horrible things because they would just entirely change in your mindset. You would have no respect for them no matter what they've done if, if we're honest if each other were honest with our sins. With everything that we've done, we just wouldn't put anybody on a pedestal and keep on reading their book if we knew the true depths of their iniquity and their heart. But for the Christian, in the Christian life, you can't begin to know your brothers and sisters. You can't even begin to know yourself, your own testimony, biography, identity, until you have come to grips with the honesty of your own iniquity and guilt and condemnation that we call sin. So it's possible to be a Christian and, and, and truly have been saved and yet at the present moment not, not have a current, functional, clear view of, of what really did happen to you when you got saved. All you know now is you love Jesus, you want to serve him, you have a book called the Bible and you're trying to join in a church and, and grow that way, but, but much of the rest is pretty unclear. That's okay. But we pray that by God's grace you would be matured and today to understand what happened to you when you were saved. And it starts with your, your ill, your corrupt, your sinful state. So first of all, we see back in verse 1. I'll read the first three verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We see many elements in this ugly portrait that God paints of us by nature. And first of all is this reality of our guilt. So he starts out in verse 1 talking about our trespasses and our iniquities or our guilt, our sin. This is the idea of, in the word trespasses there, this is the idea of, of crossing a line that ought not to be crossed. Okay, this is a, this is a, a border that you weren't supposed to go over and you did. A, a rope that you weren't supposed to climb over and touch an exhibit and you did. A, a rule in a relationship that you had agreed or vowed or covenanted not to do, but you went and did something anyway and broke that relationship. This is the idea of trespassing. Passing over a given line. 
And, and this, this is the, the word that the Bible uses to describe sin. Our iniquity before God is defined by the fact that His good and perfect and eternal law has put down into the, the very fabric of this world and our relationship to Him and the revelation in the Word of God. He has written down His commandments. Do not lie. Do not lust. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Have no other gods before him. Do not use God's name or his given practices in a, in a glib way so as to commit blasphemy by word or by action. Do not covet the things of other peoples. None of those are, are allowed to be done, and yet we do them every day. We are trespassers. We are sinners, and therefore we are in a status of guilt. Legally before the Lord God, by nature, every human being is guilty having crossed over the standards and commandments of God's law. And therefore, verse, the way that verse 1 starts out is that it speaks to that, that nature. Not just something that happened to you. Not just something that you have done once or twice in your life. But the very status of your entire being, Paul calls, dead. Not physically dead because you're alive enough to sin but spiritually dead and headed for eternal death. That's the state. That's our status. Because of our transgressions, our iniquities and our sins, we are spiritually dead and headed for eternal death. And then in verse 2, he, he in fact points out that this is not a lone venture. You are not a, not a, a single person out on some uh, act of rebellion against the Lord God. Bad enough though that is, but you are a co-conspirator. You're in fact in liege with, in, in union with the devil himself and all of his legions and forces that we call human beings. Every one of us is walking according to the step march that the devil calls out. We are marching against the Lord God, against his standards, his laws, his glory, his church, his purposes, everything that he deserves. We have raised up arms with the devil against him. And therefore he says that you are not just in this on your own, but you are guilty also by your corporate association. You are walking with the whole world behind the general called Satan. You may have thought that you have to wear a pentagram and paint your hair and, and, and get tattooed black and, and maybe even sacrifice a goat at some ungodly hour in, in the Browns Plains bushland. Maybe that's what you thought you had to do. It has to be Browns Plains. has to be Browns Plains. You thought that's, that's the sort of thing you've got to do before you can really throw on the badge of Satan worshiper or devil follower. But friend, I'm sorry, but the Lord God says that every single one of us before your conversion, or maybe even some of us this very morning, if you have not bent the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and been washed and saved by his blood, you are that. You are following Satan, even in your nice little suburban family, white picketed fence life. You are, before God in his eyes, under the banner of the devil in rebellion with the whole world against the Lord God, and therefore guilty by association. And then third, we see that, that while you might be tempted to blame the outside, he's just said we're in league with the devil, he's leading us. And yet, the way that the devil leads you is not by force. The way that you are walking according to his patterns, his ways, his courses of the world, it says there, he's not forcing you by any stretch of the imagination. By, by no means are you forced to sin the way that you did before you were converted, or maybe you do now as somebody who's not saved. 
Because the way that he tempts you, the way that he leads you to walk against God and his laws is simply by offering you what you want. Monetary gain through unrighteousness. Sexual pleasure. The the usurping of, of relationships and manipulating other people. Maybe it's a little bit of worldly fame and glory. Whatever it is that you wanted, that's what the devil gave to you. And so you've been walking in liege with him and his people and against the Lord God, transgressing and sinning every day simply because, Paul says here, the passions and the lusts of your body, your flesh, and your mind, everything about you was in the deepest affections of your heart bent against God. The law of God could be laid out in front of you and you you would be sickened by it. Righteousness is pictured before you and what do we do when the Lord... The righteous one comes to earth, we just pin him to a tree. We butcher him. That's what each of us do by nature against righteous standards, against a righteous God. We are by nature dead in our trespasses and sins. We are led about by Satan in rebellion. And we are filled and following the sinful passions and desires in our mind, body, and flesh. And therefore, Paul, Paul concludes with this, last, this final phrase of verse 3. He says that we are by nature children of wrath. And he's speaking to our legal status before God. We are children under wrath. That's our legal status. We are under the condemnation of God. We are separated from him. We are not under his blessing. You're not going to come to a church this morning and hear some kind of prepped up talk that you're, 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 just, you're filled with blessing and God's ready to pour out more blessing on you. If you just want to throw your hand up or come down the front or sow a seed of money, God will, God's just ready to bless you and make you happy and you don't have to change you. You just got to believe a little bit more. No, 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 not at all. Paul says that if you are not currently repentant of your sin, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ alone, the only thing that God is waiting to pour out onto you is his burning, furious wrath. And it's not because, I know we're all modern 21st century people, it's it's not because he's some kind of old, antiquated, moody, aged, ready-to-retire kind of God. Like he's an old-fashioned God, so he's grumpy like that. He doesn't get uh, liberal democracies and he doesn't understand the notion of, 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 of free will and defining my own truth and it's a lifestyle choice. I've got a flag, all of that. He doesn't, he doesn't care about that. Not because he's old-fashioned, but friends, because he is a just and holy God. He's the very definition of good and righteous. It is because he is righteous and just that we stand very fairly, outside of Jesus, under the condemnation of God, as children ready for wrath. We must understand this if you are to understand any part of your Christian biography, who you are as a Christian, your identity. If you don't get this, who you were, you don't understand who you are. If you reject this, say, no, you weren't that bad. You're just not one of those sinners. You know some of those sinners. They're always your neighbor or the person who works across from you at work, right? You know those types of people, it just, it's not you. If, if that's what you want to say, that you were a better type of person when Jesus found you and saved you, then Jesus didn't find you and Jesus didn't save you. So what Jesus gives to those he saves is a mind that bends the knee to this word. And eyes awakened by the Spirit to recognize your own sin. So, so do not fight this condemnation today. If you have been saved, then you are saved from exactly 
this state. And if you're not saved, then you still live now in this current state and relationship to God. Therefore, we have to understand what God should have done to us. What should God have done to a whole whole world of people filled of that kind of nature? What What should he have done? He should have killed us because we were worthy of death. Hear the word of the living God, how he has spoken in both Old and New Testament. Ezekiel 18 verse 20 says that the soul that sins shall die. Romans 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. Proverbs 11, 19 says, Genuine righteousness leads to life, but the pursuit of evil brings death. Romans 1 verse 32 says, Although they knew God's righteous decree, that those who sin in such ways are worthy of death, they not only continue to do them, but also approve of those who practice them. You see what he calls it? He says it's it's God's righteous decree that those who sin in such ways are worthy of death. That is what you deserved. Christian, that is how you lived. Up until your conversion, every millisecond of your life was under the wrath of God, and had he snuffed you out then, it would have been eternal death and punishment because of what you rightly deserved according to God's just laws. And if you're unbeliever, you're currently deserving this. If Australia should learn anything from this weekend by by thinking about the death of a sporting legend, you know what we should realize immediately? The, The reality of your frailty and mortality. That death does not promise to wait until you've retired, spent said retiring money, said goodbye to your friends, and made yourself ready for the afterlife. Death comes as a hungry lion, and he is on God's leash. And he devours you whenever he wishes. But I I guarantee that very few Australians have thought this weekend about how to ready themselves for the next life. I pray that wouldn't be your state. If you're an unbeliever, I pray that today, have been praying that today, you recognize you will die. You must die. You're a sinner. That's what sinners must do. It's God's righteous decree. But when you die, you'll be ushered into a state and presence of such unending terror and doom that death will be the greatest day of that whole eternity. It will be a hot and fiery, horrible existence. We are spiritually dead and we deserve death. And now finally we're at the passage that we said we were going to be pulling out this morning. Can you look back at verse 4 in your Bible? Verse 4. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen? Amen. While you deserved death, you were spiritually dead, and God, God was righteously bound to do nothing other than kill you further. What did he do, Christian? He made you alive. Not physically, but spiritually. So that before you were spiritually dead, going on to eternal death, and now you have been made spiritually alive and going on to eternal life. 
God did what he should not have done. God did not do what he should have done. If we're just speaking legally, justly, righteously, he should have ushered us into unending death and instead he ushered us into unending life. But God, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. He did the opposite of what we deserved. He gave to us instead of taking away life from us. He did this to his enemies, what few men would even do for their sons. Gave everything that he had in order to give to us unending life. And why? You have to ask why. It's because, verse 5 goes on, sorry, verse 4 goes on, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. He made us alive because his mercy overflowed over to us. He decided to show grace and love out of the infinite bounds of his own faithful kindness, not because of what he saw in us. So so we don't then read verse 4 and say, yeah, yeah, that sounds better. All of this ugly, dead in sin, horrible sinner, guilty, deserving hell, that old-fashioned stuff, should have clipped it off there. But this sort of business of God being merciful towards us, okay, that sounds better. And in fact, maybe maybe we're not as bad as we thought we were from reading verse 1 to 3. Like, I've over, over-applied it. You're just going to put the blame on me and preachers like me. It doesn't mean what you said it means because, look, he's being so merciful towards us. How could it mean that if this is what he does? If he was really that angry, what's all this mercy business? No, I I think in in giving us life, making us alive, we weren't so bad. Don't think like that. Don't, Don't, when you hear of God's loving benefits, don't think, oh, I must not have been so sinful as I thought. Rather think, God is so much more loving than I've ever comprehended before because look at how evil I was and how gracious, how how much blessing, how merciful, how loving he was to such as me. We did not deserve it objectively and he gave it to us for no reason in us but merely because he had in himself love and mercy while we were spiritually dead rebels. He loved us. He made you alive, Christian. And ask, ask how? Ask in your own mind, how did he do that? And I'll answer, great question. Let's answer that from the text. How? We saw what he made us alive. Why? Because he had so much love and mercy. But how? How did he make us alive? And friends, this is the core of the mystery. Part of the mystery is that you get life instead of death. But the core of the mystery is how that comes about. You get life instead of death because Jesus Christ died. God puts you to life. God makes you alive because he put his son to death. Because he made Jesus sin and death. We find life because Jesus died. And and we have to ask, if you're listening at all, we have to ask, why him? Wasn't I deserving death? Let's, let's put ourselves on the, on the right foot now and say, that's not, that's not right, that's not just, that's not fair. I deserve death. I, I find people with this um, uh, uh, objection actually quite often. 
or preaching the, the gospel in the city or handing out tracts on the street or whatever, and you get in a conversation with somebody, a self-righteous, self-made man who's, who's pretty happy with what they've done in life, and you tell them that, that because of their guilt, and maybe they're willing to take that on the chin, I'm pretty guilty, okay, I've done those things in life, you know, you're, you're talking about it now, I recognize I'm not a perfect guy, okay, and, and then you tell them that the only way to be freed from their condemnation is the free gift of God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He died so that you could live. He was put to death so that you could be given life, and, and so often the response is no, no thank you. Uh, uh, there's probably a, a better way that we can figure out here that's a bit more fair, a bit more just, a little bit, a little bit from both sides because we just don't like being the sole receiver and benefactor in a, uh, in, a, in a transaction. We don't like that, but that's the grace of God. That you don't, you don't have to bring anything because Jesus has done everything. This is the grace, the, the, the scales are not at all balanced here. This, this transaction of you getting life and God giving life is entirely asymmetrical. There's nothing that you've brought and that you've done but God has made you alive because he made his son dead. And the reason, now maybe you're thinking logically, great news, awesome gospel, cool text, Paul, but, but how does that work? How is some guy dying, meaning that I get life? That's almost the definition of injustice. How is it that by killing Jesus, I am enabled to be raised to spiritual life? And the answer is given to us, at least very clearly, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says that I have been, and all sinners can say that, we have been crucified with Christ. All Christians can say that. We have been crucified in Christ and with Christ, and therefore, when he died, you died. Not physically. You didn't die then. You weren't whipped and scourged and beaten. You didn't have the, the crown of thorns shoved into your brow. You weren't punched and whipped and you weren't pinned to a ruggedy splintered cross and the big nails weren't shoved through your wrists and you didn't hang there dying and drowning on your own blood in your lungs and, and you weren't wrapped up and buried in the grave of, of Joseph of Arimathea and you didn't get back up that Sunday morning and walk around and show your friends the holes in your hands and you didn't get up onto an invisible chariot of fire and float up onto heaven and you were not ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days and sat down onto the throne of God. You didn't do that. Any, anybody, if you think you did that, if you have that memory, you, you need to quit whatever substance it is that you take pleasure in. You didn't do that. That never happened to you. And yet, it happened to you. Not in your body, but in Christ's body. For God has, has joined your accounts. Maybe, maybe you've gotten married. Uh, maybe, maybe you've joined accounts with somebody in a business dealing and you know that whatever they bring to the table, if it is a true joining of accounts, their debts become your debts. That They're absolved into one another. And your riches, or their riches, become your riches, or, or your riches become their riches. It's a joining of accounts. This is what Martin Luther called the great transaction that occurs in the marriage of conversion. Jesus, the great bridegroom, comes and finds a filthy, indebted, poor slave woman and marries her, takes her to the palace and, and walks her down the cathedral aisle and weds her in the, in the presence of all the angels and demons and people of the earth who rejected him. And in that moment, our worst 
is joined to Jesus and his best is given to us in this transaction, this marriage of accounts that we call union with Christ. So that now whatever was true of Jesus can be said of you. Did you live a perfect life? No, no, you lived a transgressing, sinning, dead in sin life. But Jesus lived a perfect life, so it can be said of you, you have the record of a perfect life on your account. Did you die what you deserved to die under the wrath and law of God? No, you didn't. But Jesus did for you, therefore it can be said of you, you have died, you have fulfilled your account, you have paid off all of the debts that were owed to God and his law because Jesus died. So that, so that we can say that Jesus died, therefore I died. And Jesus was buried, therefore I was buried. And Jesus rose, therefore I rose. And it doesn't stop there. Look at, look at verse 6. <clears throat> he made us alive, verse 6, and raised us up with him. Not simply into life, we've already said that. He, he made us alive. This raising up is off of the, the ground of the earth, up into the skies of heaven, this spiritual realm. Verse 6 is talking about, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why and, and, and how are you made alive in the death of Jesus? Because God has made you one Christian. He has unified you to Jesus so that in his death you died and now in his life, in his ascension, and in his seating on the throne of God, you are with him. You have life. You have honor. He has given to you a royal status under God. We are alive, raised, ascended, seated with Christ, sitting with Christ because of the unmerited favor and rich mercy of our loving God. This is what God has done. This is how then we ought to live. Look at, look at verse 7 now, going even further than what we've read in verse 7. The what now? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Look at verse, uh, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, the gospel is not simply that some of us are going to get saved and you'll find out who that is when you die. And, and, and I promise you, if you try and right now believe in Jesus, you, you might be one of those people. And, or maybe even you'll definitely be one of those people, but, but we just don't know right now. Nothing changes in you. But when you die, you'll probably get told you're going to heaven. Have fun. Live life. Give money. Whatever. That, that's not the gospel. That's not the fullness of the message in Jesus. Rather, the message is not simply, you've been forgiven, now keep living dead in sin, keep on transgressing, keep on following whatever course and, and spiritual forces you wish to do. No, the gospel is you've been made alive now and forgiven, and now in this new life, your whole life is to show the power of the grace of God because he can take sinners and change our lives. Uh, that's what he says in verse 7. In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. Our whole life is now meant to be shaped in such a way of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10 says, works that have been 
prepared beforehand for us, we walk in them so as to show the world, show all those around us, this is what God does with sinners. Look at the immeasurable riches of his kindness, what, what he's willing to do. But look at the immeasurable riches of his power, what he is able to do. You know how I used to live. You can, you can go to your workplace, probably, if you were saved a bit later in life. You, were, you can go to your friends at school. You can, you can talk to your neighbors or, or your old friends that you're in college or uni with. And you can tell them, you remember how I lived? Just read them, Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. We went to the parties together, mate. We've, we've done those things together. I, I, I used to chase the gals together. I used to chase the boys together, the ladies might say. I used to do this. I used to look at that. We used to speak this way, get drunk this way, do all sorts of things. But now, Christian, can you say that? Not that what you have done has made you alive, but that by God making you alive, you can now say, my life is so changed that people can visibly see the grace of God in power changing me. Are you walking in those good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to walk in? Such is the life that we've been given. If spiritually we have been raised, seated, enthroned with Jesus, then our lifestyle will change radically. And by God's grace, it does. And lastly, we can see how, how we are to enter in. This has been the Christian biography. By God's grace, we pray that it is yours if you're not a believer. Maybe you came in with your family and if you're a high schooler, you're younger, Christianity is not your religion yet, you've got questions, you've got problems with it, you've read articles, you don't like it. Maybe you're older and you're coming to support a mate, getting baptized. Maybe you just wandered in here and you've not really been a church person before. Wherever you are at, if you are not a believer, we pray that this becomes true for you today. That you would understand the life-giving grace and power of the Lord Jesus, that God would so do that in your heart and make you a new person to give God glory instead of being a rebel against him. And for those people, as Christians, we look back and we can remember how we entered in. But for the unbelievers, I want to ask and answer this question, how you may enter into all of this glorious blessing from God, how you can enter in. Surely we think, that for a blessing so immeasurable, it has to cost something. There's got to be a high price. For a treasure so eternal, there must be a severe cost. For a relationship so life-giving, there must be something that he demands. We might think according to the axiom, which is otherwise true, doesn't it dishonor something's value if you take it and don't pay for it? You, if you take something of mine and you don't pay for it, we have a neat little word for that. It's either called taxes if you're the government or if you're another individual, okay, we call that theft, stealing. You, you've dishonored my goods by taking something free. But that axiom only works if we're considering finite things. When we start, when we start speaking of invaluable infinitely valuable things, it actually becomes the greatest insult to try and offer me anything for it. If I send my son into a building that is burning around you and, and he perishes in saving you, it's the insult of insults to whack out a, a crisp hundred and put it in my pocket and say, cheers. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't, that, wouldn't that trying to pay back actually becomes the insult? And so it is with salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. A gift so immeasurable in its glory that God does not 
cannot, it's unthinkable that he would demand us to do anything to merit it. Because we can't. Only Jesus has merited it for us. So what does God demand of you, unbeliever? Or if you're a Christian, what did God demand of you in order for him to give you Jesus Christ and all of his life-giving forgiveness and blessings? Is it that he will take as a bargaining chip everything you've ever done in life? So all of the good things you've done, the money you've given, the compliments you've made, the, the people you've helped, all of that. That'll count for something, okay? He'll, he'll take some of that and one more thing or a couple more things. And these things are religious things. So he'll take what you've done and then he wants a bit more. He wants your Sunday mornings. He wants your 10% of money. He wants some good deeds. He wants your language to clean up. He wants you to wear more button-up shirts. Uh, he wants you to wear longer trousers, looser trousers, longer skirts, uh, cut your hair this way, uh, listen to this sort of music. It's got to have a banjo in it. Or does Jesus start making legal rules on top of you to say, I'll take what you've done and I'll ask a little bit more? No. Well, does, does God demand that he will take nothing that you've done, but he just wants you to do one thing? He wants you to enact one kind of spiritual sacrifice of obedience. And once you well that up and do that in you, then he'll save you. This thing is called faith. So that it's, it's, it's love God the most in life. It's feel the right feelings. It's, it's doing the right sort of internal spiritual stuff. Is that faith which God demands instead of all of the sin that we've done and all of the other righteous deeds? No, that's not what God demands. What God demands of you to receive Jesus and all that is in Jesus is to stop doing anything. When you think of your relationship to God and how you might enter in, you need to empty your hands. You need to stop acting in any way that you think will tip the scales in your benefit. You need to stop your doing. You need to sit down at the foot of the cross. You need to make sure that your hands are empty of any kind of merit you're trying to earn before God. Empty your pockets of anything that you are trying to, to buy God's favor with. God wants you to stop your doing and just hear the good news that Jesus died for you, rose for you, such that his death can be accounted your death and his life can infuse you and bring you to life. Just believe that. Just hear it and, and don't reject that. And if you do, that is what the Bible calls faith. Not an act of doing is faith. Not an act of one more legal obedience is faith. Not an act of spiritual emotion is faith. It's simply the hearing of the word of Christ and receiving and believing that good news as it applies to you. So that God's demand and command to you is to cease you're doing because all has been done. There is nothing left to earn. Jesus has earned it all. You must bring nothing to him. What, what could possibly be left to do to gain God's grace in Jesus if Jesus did everything? The demand on you is nothing at all. And that willingness to bring nothing at all and receive Jesus is how we define faith. Everything that needed doing was done. Everything that needed giving was giving. Everything that was owed was paid by Christ. Done in Christ's living, in his death, and in his resurrection. Therefore, what you have received in Jesus Christ is life eternal. Life that starts now. And a commission for good works. 
and the ability to carry that out. Full forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit in your life, a family in the church, a, a guiding principle in the Word of God, and eternal life yet to come. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. For by grace you have been saved through this faith that we are talking about. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this faith is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Just in case anybody wants at that moment to, to take a little bit of God's glory for themselves and your salvation, or insult his gift by saying, well, I gave God faith. No, faith is not something that is given by us. In fact, faith is something that is given by God. You are simply commanded, hear, believe, receive this promise of life in Christ Jesus. And even the ability to do so is something that God put in your heart before you exercised it. God is the giver of every good gift. God is the beginner, the worker, and the ender of our salvation. And so you who are being baptized today, you can claim with Paul in Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and now it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian, this is every one of our identity. This is every one of our testimonies. And I'm believing you need, you need to know this. Your true state is explained here in this text of your guilt, your trespass, of your corruption before God. But your solution and your only solution is here. Receive and believe the good news that in Jesus, God is fully willing to, to forgive all of your sins. He is fully willing to receive you into his family, fully aware of what you've done. You don't have to hide anything. You don't need to earn anything. He is willing to give a free gift. And so turn away from your sin and lean and rest on Jesus Christ who has done it all. There is nothing for you to do today, for everything was done a very, very long time ago. This case, this account has been closed for 2,000 years. Simply take a transaction from its grace and all of Jesus' benefits. Let's pray. Father God, by our union with, union with the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us who are Christians have received a, a new nature and identity. We are children of the Lord God instead of children of wrath. We are righteous in the Lord Jesus instead of guilty and condemned. We are forgiven instead of having your wrath against us. We are your sons and your daughters instead of being your enemies. We are now obedient servants of the Lord Jesus Christ instead of rebels under the general of the devil. We are, we are people who have a new commission in life to glorify you through, through preaching the news of this good salvation and, and living lives of holiness according to your word instead of living according to our own folly and sin and passions. Lord God, we have a new eternity and destiny that we will be with you forever, enjoying and rejoicing in your grace instead of going forever to the pit of hell where we will give to you the due punishment because of all of our sins. Father God, may you give to each Christian today, even as now we, we witness baptism soon, would you give to us a, an overwhelming sense of gratitude 
of awareness of our prior guilt, of, of the grace that God has poured out in Jesus and now gratitude that we live this life with. Father God, for every one of us who is not a Christian, who still sits here and all of this is still strange to them, would, would you awaken in them that gift of faith? Would you be so gracious, Lord, instead of giving them the death penalty they deserve, would you usher to them eternal and instantaneous life so that they can live for the Lord Jesus Christ? Father God, would you give them faith to believe and be saved this very day? And in the name of our, of our crucified, risen, glorious, enthroned Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray all of these things. And everybody said, Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.